Mjolnir. Mjolnir. It's like a Y. It's a way. It's like, pronounce it like a Y, not a J. Mjolnir. Mjolnir. Like Mjolnir. like like a cat. Meow. Only Mjol. Mjolnir. 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 Good. You can do it. I can do it. I believe I'm, in you, Emily. I'm not Norwegian. I'm not from a Nordic country. You're not from a Nordic country, but you have the hardiness of their people. I believe you can do it. Mjolnir. Mjolnir. I'm Mjolnir. My ancestry is Scottish. They are not they're, Norse. They're hardy. They're hardy too. You know. <laughs> They're better at getting drunk and kicking people when they're down, but that's another story. Not that I've ever seen you do either of those two things. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. It's another Friday night here in Studio M. Emily, good evening. How are you doing tonight? We've got new microphones. So we got a little equipment upgrade, which I hope you all have probably noticed by now we got new microphones we got new dynamic microphones a couple weeks ago and this is our first time using them and i mean i'm very excited i'm very excited about this because i think we sound fantastic so we're going to talk about thor the next movie that we're going to be reviewing in the mcu but first mcu news let's see i think the big thing that happened shang chi and the legend of the ten rings wrapped in mid-October, which kind of took everybody by surprise. No one was expecting that to happen so quickly. I think they went back to work in Australia, like in the beginning of October, and I think they had maybe about a month left of filming to do, and they just decided, we're going to get this done in two weeks, and that's exactly what they did. So they have now wrapped principal photography, so we will, COVID willing, see that film next July. So that was kind of amazing how they got that taken care of. We also found out just this past week, uh, the WandaVision premiere has been moved back a little bit. So it's going to be January 15th, 2021. So we were kind of hoping we would get some new MCU content in the year 2020, even if it was just a, well, not just a, but a Disney Plus show, but even that's not going to happen. But we only have to wait a few more weeks. January 15th will be the premiere of WandaVision. News also broke this week that Chris Pratt will be reprising his role as a Star-Lord in Thor Love and Thunder, which I guess is not entirely surprising given how Infinity War and Endgame played out. So it'd be kind of interesting to see him in someone else's movie. And that just about does it for MCU news. There has been a lot of chatter about Black Panther too, though, even just tonight. Right before we recorded, I saw on Twitter that they're planning to start filming, I think, in January. Really? Oh, okay. I beg pardon. We're not done with MCU news. Ooh, do tell more, Emily. That's about all I saw. And I know you and I talked a week or two ago about how they weren't going to use CGI for Chadwick Boseman. Right, which I think is a wise decision. Yeah, me too. And obviously that Shuri's going to have a, more of a leading role in the movie, but not, it was nothing specific. Let me pull up the article and I'll read it. There is precedent in the comics for Shuri to become Black Panther, so I kind of think it makes sense to do that. I hope that's what they do. Ah, correction. Black Panther 2 starts filming in July. That's still not terribly far off. If they can keep everything safe, a lot of these productions are going to start ramping up next year. So, well, we had absolutely nothing this year. In like 2022, we're going to see a ton of stuff. And some of it in 2021, if we can get to the theaters. So that is interesting news. Thank you for letting me know. I must have missed that. All right. Now on to the main attraction, Thor, his first solo outing, his first appearance in the MCU, which opened on May 6, 2011 in the U.S. The film stars Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman, 
Tom Hiddleston, Stellan Skarsgård, Idris Elba, Kat Dennings, Rene Russo, and Anthony Hopkins. Screenplay by Ashley Edward Miller, Zach Stentz, and Don Payne from a story by J. Michael Straczynski and Mark Prosevich. J. Michael Straczynski is probably best known as the creator of the sci-fi TV show Babylon 5, but he's also a comic book writer. His run on the Thor comic book was the basis for much of this movie's story, and he also has a cameo as the guy who finds the hammer in the desert. It is directed by legendary actor-director Kenneth Branagh, a man who's been nominated for five Oscars and five Golden Globe Awards, best known for directing and starring in a number of film adaptations of plays by William Shakespeare, such as Henry V, which I love. It's a fantastic film. Much Ado About Nothing, Othello, Hamlet, Love's Labor's Lost, and As You Like It. In fact, I took a film class my senior year of college, and we had to watch Dead Again twice for that class. It was kind of the capstone of that class. At the box office, it grossed $449.3 million on a budget of just $150 million. Again, another huge hit for Marvel, hot on the heels of the Iron Man movies. And those are the vital stats. Did you have a chance to look at the Collider interview with Kenneth Branagh by any chance, Emily? I did not, no. You did not? That's You'll okay. You'll have to recap for me and for all the listeners. All right. Piece of cake. I was watching a video the other day. It was a, an interview by the folks at Collider. It was actually done over the summer, so it's a fairly recent interview. And the guy was interviewing Kenneth Branagh. He was talking about a lot of things, including Thor. And Branagh was talking about how crucial it was for Thor to work, the film, to work and to be successful as the bridge between the stuff that we'd already seen, you know, Captain America and the Iron Man movies, the bridge between those things and the more fantastical cosmic elements of the MCU, Thor was their introduction. And so it was really important for this film to work, to mate, as it were, the fantastical and the sci-fi elements with the more Earth-based stuff that we'd already seen. Overall impressions of the film. Guess what, Emily? We've got another redemption story. Woohoo! You know, I love those. I love this movie when it first came out in 2011, and I had forgotten just how much I loved it. I think it beautifully captures the spirit of the comics as first presented to the world by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. And the choice of Kenneth Branagh to direct ends up making perfect sense to me, at least, as this story is very Shakespearean in nature. You've got warring kingdoms, jealousy, betrayal, romance, family conflict. The introduction of the sci-fi fantasy element, I think, only broadens the canvas of the MCU, and it really makes the future films possible, I think. You know, as much as I loved Thor Ragnarok, I thought that's a fantastic movie. I think I'm always going to enjoy the original Thor just a little bit more. And where would you rank this one? It's still not going to be in my top five. I'm still going to stick to my top five guns that I brought out in our first episode, but I might put Thor in the top ten. I might put it in my top ten, maybe like right around ten. It's just a very memorable movie for me. I keep thinking that one day I'll go through all of our episodes that we've done already and make sure that I'm not ranking movies on top of one another or getting my numbers wrong. But I think I'd probably agree with you that it's right around 10, so maybe 9 to 11, somewhere mm -hmm. in there. I think it's a really good introduction movie, and I think it sets Thor and Loki up both really well. And we'll talk about this throughout the podcast, but it has very good cinematography. It's a beautifully shot film. We it's are going to talk about beautiful. It looks great. And, and you're absolutely right. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, this sets up so much of what we see through the rest of the MCU. Even stuff that plays out in Infinity War and Endgame wouldn't be possible without this movie and the setup of the Thor character and his universe and his relationship with Loki and other people. And one thing I'm glad about for all of the introduction movies is that there's not much crossover in this. 
them. I guess besides Spider-Man Homecoming. But I like that each main character can be developed outside of the group movies. And I think I do prefer Ragnarok, but this one is good too, and it is much better than Thor's second movie. Thor The Dark World, I mean, we're going to get to that sooner than you think. A lot of people had issues with that movie. I like your take on intro movies. I guess Spider-Man Homecoming was kind of an oddity because Spider-Man in the MCU was introduced in a crossover movie and then got his own solo film. So I guess they sort of felt they could break that pattern by putting Tony in there, which you kind of gathered was the plan all along when they introduced him in Civil War. And so the story begins. We start off with that teaser in New Mexico with Jane Foster, Eric Selvig, and Darcy Lewis, where we don't know what the hell is happening. Somehow this actually seems like a really good way to open this particular film. I just want to warn you that a lot of this podcast is going to be me quoting Darcy Lewis. Which somehow seems incredibly appropriate. You have a lot of Darcy-like qualities, I think, Emily. I think Darcy and I have a kinship going, yeah. I can see you as kindred spirits, absolutely. I, I would not die for six college credits, that's for <laughs> sure. I would not die for what for any amount of college credits. Would you die to get your iPod back? In 2011, maybe. In 2020, eh. There are probably young people listening saying, what's an iPod? <laughs> And then we flash back to Tunsberg, Norway once again. Tunsberg, Norway keeps coming back into the picture. Only this time, the year is AD 965. We find out that the Frost Giants, led by their king, Laufey, are trying to take over the Nine Realms. And they're defeated here on Earth by the Asgardians, led by their king, the Allfather Odin, who drives them back to their homeworld of Jotunheim and takes their source of power, the Casket of Ancient Winters. This is where we establish that the mortals of Midgard, Earth, have come to view these various aliens as as gods, thus giving birth to what we now recognize as Norse mythology. The Casket of Ancient Winters sure looks a lot like the Tesseract. You know, I used to think that a lot too when the movie first came out. I confused it with the Tesseract, maybe not initially, but like after Captain America came out and then I would go back and watch Thor on video again. I'm like, wait a minute, that looks like the Tesseract. I wonder if they're somehow related, though. They could be. There's something about glowing blue objects in the MCU. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Whether it's it be suspicious. glowing blue boxy cube-like things and energy blasts. It seems to be a theme. The opening shots of Asgard in this movie, I think we kind of alluded to this earlier, are stunning and glorious. Especially if you're a fan of the comics. That first shot of Asgard, it looks like a Jack Kirby illustration come to life. It's just beautiful. We talked about these types of shots, too, during Captain Marvel, that anytime they take us to another world or somewhere that isn't New York or California or wherever. Everything is super fantastical and huge and intimidating. I like that scene where Odin is talking to young Loki and young Thor because even in that brief shot of them as children, you, you already get the sense that Thor is, is pretty reckless. He just wants to fight, fight, fight. And there's also a bit of foreshadowing in there too. Odin's quote about only one of you can ascend to the throne, but both of you were born to be kings. It's funny, you know, I've many times I've seen the movie, I never kind of made that connection. That's a really good point. Flash forward to the present, where we find a very cocky Thor getting ready to ascend to the throne of Asgard. But the coronation is interrupted by a group of frost giants who've infiltrated the palace in an attempt to take back the casket of ancient winters. Fortunately, they are thwarted rather handily by the destroyer, this nearly indestructible Asgardian automaton that's guarding the vault underneath of the palace. And I love the whole scene where Thor is arguing with Odin about what they should do. And I think one place where we see Thor grow up over the course of all the movies is that he's less brash and aggressive as time goes on. Or I don't know if those are exactly the right words that I want to use, but he's a bit more tactful. You know, not all the time, of course, because everybody has their moments, but he does seem more willing to consider other options and make better decisions and think about the outcomes of his actions. 
I think you even see that a little bit over the course of the movie. We don't specifically talk about it, but when he smashes the cup in the diner as like a mm-hmm. way to say that he wants more, and right. they all say like, "No, you can't do that," and he goes, "Okay, I won't do that." Any like growth. Yes. <laughs> Every journey has a first step, right? <laughs> Starts with recognizing that you're not allowed to smash coffee cups in diners. I also loved Loki's face when Thor and Odin are arguing. It's absolutely hilarious. Like, it does have that bit of trickster, mad king kind of thing. As the audience, we know that what happened with the Frost Giants is his fault. And so his looking back and forth, like, I'm just going to let you guys hash this out and then I'll do whatever we end up doing. I agree with you wholeheartedly. There was something about a lot of those early scenes in the movie. Loki's just kind of standing there. His eyes are following back and forth the conversation like he's watching a tennis match. You know, left and right and left and right. He's kind of sizing things up before he makes his move because, you know, that's how Loki works. He's playing the long game and he will be as patient as he needs to be. And he just wants to kind of watch everything first. Seeking to brashly assert himself as the soon-to-be king of Asgard, Thor unwisely journeys to Jotunheim, accompanied by only his brother Loki and his good friends Lady Sif and the Warriors Three, Fandral, Hogan, and Volstag, in an attempt to take revenge on Laufey and the Frost Giants. There are three problems with this. A. They don't know that the attack on the palace was sanctioned by Laufey. B. Odin has a truce with Laufey, which Thor is now about to break, and see, it's just a dumb idea to waltz into Jotunheim without an army. And right before this happens, we see more stunning images of Asgard. We get to see the Rainbow Bridge and the Bifrost for the first time, and this is where we meet Heimdall, played by Idris Elba, the gatekeeper of the Bifrost. I love how Loki seems downright rational and pragmatic during the early parts of the movie, before he finds out he's a frost giant. Even he thinks that going to Jotunheim is a bad idea, and he tries to talk Thor out of it. I wonder, though, is he motivated by self-preservation, pragmatism, or perhaps a little bit of both? You do get the sense, you know, even after he goes cuckoo, that Loki's always been very calculating. It's just his nature, so it's hard for me to tell. I think that's part of Loki's whole personality, I guess, as a trickster god kind of thing. It's enjoyable to be unhinged, I imagine, like, to not have to care about anything and just go for your end goal. But if you do have an end goal, you have to be somewhat in control at all points to make it work. And Loki's end goal, I think, also evolves as he's devolving. So his first end goal, as we hear later, is to rain on Thor's parade, so to speak. And then his goal is to be Thor's equal. And then his goal is to overtake Thor. And then, as we see in the next movie for the Avengers, his goal is, you know, world domination. (laughs) And so as he's losing control a little bit more, his goals get a little bit more lofty. Inversely proportional grasp of reality versus goals. Clearly outnumbering Thor's group, Laufey grants them one final opportunity to leave before things go absolutely sideways. And Thor and company almost make it out in one piece. But then a frost giant offers up a very playground style insult at Thor's expense and Thor predictably loses it and starts a very very big fight. In the course of that fight we learn that Loki is mysteriously immune to the otherwise deadly touch of the frost giants. So the fight progresses and Fandral gets hurt so the group decides to retreat and it's only the timely intervention of Odin that saves them. Upon their return to Asgard, Odin strips Thor of his title, his abilities, and his hammer, and banishes him from Asgard through the Bifrost. 
Before casting Mjolnir after him, Odin puts a spell on the hammer, indicating that whoever proves themselves worthy shall possess the power of Thor. Too bad Steve is still on the ice. <laughs> that reminds me, did I show you one of my ornaments from my tree this year? No. Is it's it cool. Steve Rogers in a block of ice? No, it is not Steve Rogers in a block of ice. Darn. No, but it does. I'll give you a little hint. It involves Steve Rogers in the final fight in Endgame. Ah, okay. Continue. <laughs> And so we're brought back to the moment from the teaser where Jane's research van hits Thor, who's just crashed on Earth. And the hammer lands nearby shortly thereafter, although it's not found by anybody until the following morning. And this is where we essentially, for the first time, meet Jane Foster, Eric Selvig, and of course, Darcy Lewis, played by Kat Dennings, who absolutely cracks me up every single time, as everything that comes out of her mouth is just so damn funny. Like... Does he need CPR? I can totally do CPR. Darcy, I think, might be one of the most underrated secondary characters in the MCU. She reacts, I think, kind of how we said before, how I would. Back in Hulk, we talked about the regular people and how they would be reacting to all the superhero stuff. And folks are always portrayed responding rather reasonably to ridiculous situations. But Darcy's like, yeah, this is cool, but this isn't normal. Like, you remember normal? Remember what I was just... <laughs> listening to my iPod and I categorizing your notes and now there's people falling from outer space like this is not okay and I really appreciate that someone in the MCU has realized that this isn't normal and has found a way to express that sentiment in a way that's not only honest but fortunately for us very entertaining after looking at all sorts of scans and nifty looking pictures Jane and Selvig start to put two and two together and realize that Thor may have arrived by way of some sort of wormhole and shortly thereafter we get the Stan Lee cameo. Him is one of the many townsfolk who've made it a party out of trying to remove Mjolnir from its landing spot. Lo and behold, just like he said he would back in Iron Man 2, Agent Phil Coulson of S.H.I.E.L.D. arrives. All the people coming out to the crater to tailgate and try to pull the hammer out, like some sort of modern day Excalibur situation, feels so distinctly American to me. Can you see this happening back in Texas? Oh, of course. I could see this happening here. <laughs> Just without all the desert. And of course, right around this time, we have our first obligatory shirtless scene for Chris Hemsworth. Right after that, my friend Janet, if you're listening, always think of you whenever that scene happens. She was around when we saw the movie the first time and she just sort of giggled hysterically. The Donald Blake My Name Is sticker. In the comics way back when, Thor had the ability to take the appearance and identity of someone named Donald Blake. He was either a nurse or an EMT, I don't quite remember. Whenever he needed to be on Earth undisclosed for a long period of time, that was his disguise. He would use Mjolnir to turn him into this kind of much more mild-mannered medical guy named Don Blake. So that's the genesis of that, for those of you who are interested. Back on Asgard, Loki, Sif, and the Warriors 3 convene around the largest fire pit ever, <laughs> if you ask me, and Loki reveals that he told Heimdall to tell Odin of their trip to Jotunheim before they left. While he claims he had no idea Odin would banish Thor, Loki also makes it clear that perhaps Thor would not have been a good king. As Loki departs to further consider the bit about his hand not getting frosted, Sif and the Warriors 3 discuss Loki's lifelong jealousy of Thor and the possibility that Loki might be the traitor in the house of Odin, to which Laufey alluded earlier. And then we get to the scene where Odin reveals to Loki that he, Loki, is a frost giant, a son of Laufey, orphaned as a baby after the battle in Norway back in 965. Odin took him and adopted him as his own son in the hope that one day he'd be instrumental in uniting the two warring kingdoms in peace. The confrontation upsets both of them, and Odin finds himself shaken to the point where he passes out and falls into the Odin sleep, a kind of deep, restorative coma-like state. Loki then ascends to the throne of Asgard in 
Odin's stead. Sif and the Warriors three beg Loki to end Thor's exile, and naturally, he refuses. All right. So, first we had Howard Stark. Now we can add Odin to the list of really bad fathers in the MCU. Loki's quote, the genesis of his rage, and also the genesis of the pathos that we're supposed to feel for him. So I am no more than another stolen relic, locked up here until you might have use for me. I mean, this is where we get that moment of realization, that moment where we really understand the motivation behind Loki's actions. He is clearly very hurt by this revelation. As the father of an adopted son myself, I can't help but shake my head at Odin's decision to to keep knowledge of Loki's adoption from him. Almost every adoption authority in the world today will tell you how damaging that can be, both for the adoptee and the relationship with the adoptive parent. Like Loki said, you, know, you couldn't have a frost giant sitting on the throne of Asgard. Loki is a jerk even before he takes this downturn into villainous behavior. But to me, he's not necessarily a villain. Once you consider everything in the universe, more of just a chaos agent. I guess, sort of untethered to any greater purpose or villainous plan. But if you do want to consider him a villain, his starting point for it is pretty clear. And he very much was stolen. Like, he is right when he calls himself a stolen relic. He wasn't given up or sought after in a caring way. He was taken for a purpose by someone, Odin, who didn't consider the emotional or human factor of his choice. Odin can talk all he wants about how he thinks Thor is a fool, but Odin wasn't spotless either. Absolutely. And I wonder, too, if... When Thor and Lady Sif and the Warriors 3 and Loki all get to Jotunheim, does Laufey know that Loki is his? Or does Laufey think that one of his children was taken and killed or disposed of somehow? Do you think Laufey knows? I've wondered that off and on throughout the years. You don't really learn enough about Laufey in this movie to make a judgment as to whether or not that either he has absolutely no idea or he knows. Maybe he knows and he's playing the long game and he's hoping that maybe somehow his flesh and blood in the House of Odin will work to his advantage. It's hard to say. Maybe that's deliberate. I don't know. I kind of suspect that he knew and that he was just waiting. He strikes me as a very, very patient person, just like Loki is. Back on Earth, we get the whole Thor as fish out of water experience as we see him fumbling his way through this small town in middle of nowhere, New Mexico. He goes off to try and recover Mjolnir while S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up at Jane's makeshift office to confiscate her research on Thor and his arrival. Jane eventually finds Thor wandering around town and takes him to the location of his hammer, which is now very heavily guarded by S.H.I.E.L.D. And just as a little side thing, I always get a little thrilled during the scene of Eric Selvig in the library, probably because I was finishing up my library degree when this movie came out. So I was like, yay, librarians, going to save the world. And we're going to talk about this more later. I do have some issues with Natalie Portman in this role, but for some reason, I find the budding attraction between Jane and Thor really quite sincere. I mean, most of us have had, at one time or another, had the experience of meeting someone and finding ourselves drawn to them and feeling all giddy and giggly when we're around them. And Natalie Portman as Jane may not entirely work for me, but for some reason, the relationship between her and Thor does work for me. And I have to say that I don't really follow the Thor storyline very closely. He's not really one of my favorites of the Avengers, but I do wish we got to see more of him and Jane. We really only get this movie and Thor the Dark World, and she's sort of sidelined for the rest of the movies, it feels like. Well, uh, we hopefully we won't have to wait more than a couple more years before we get to see her again in Thor Love and Thunder. But I do agree. It was a good relationship. It's just sort of a, a shame we didn't get to see more of it early on. But hopefully Love and Thunder will correct some of that. I'm not 100% certain, but I'm willing to bet that Natalie Portman 
didn't want anymore to do with Marvel after that second Thor movie. It took Taika Waititi making her an offer that apparently she couldn't refuse to bring her back, but I just get the feeling that she was tired of doing these after the second film. I think it was kind of like, okay, I already did the Star Wars thing three films in a row. I don't need to do any more big blockbusters. If Taika Waititi offered me anything, I would do it. Maybe he's the one you need to talk to about your... Oh, about my sitcom? That's it. All he needs is $10 and a can of Coke. He would 100% do a Marvel sitcom. Did you see Thor Ragnarok? That was sitcom and movie form. All right. We've got to find a way to get write your pitch. You write your pitch. I'll try to find a way to get in touch with Taika Waititi. We have to get this podcast to Taika Waititi immediately. That's it. When we're done this, we're going to at him on the announcement on Twitter. We totally have to do that. We must make sure to only speak nicely of him from here on out in this podcast. <laughs> we not, not that we wouldn't do that anyway, but now we really have to. Right around here, we also get the quick scene between Loki and his mother, Freya, as they look upon the slumbering Odin. She's telling Loki that she and Odin love him as their son, regardless of what Odin did, and that Thor still has some sort of purpose in the universe. It's a short scene. It's the only one in which we get to see Freya really do anything substantive, but it helps establish that there's something special about the relationship between between her and Loki, that she's probably a lot wiser than Odin. It's a brief but very heartfelt performance by Rene Russo, who I've always always liked. I like the scene, especially in the context of what we see in Thor the Dark World. You know, the relationship between her and Loki is very pivotal in that movie. She only has like a handful of sort of meaty scenes in the entire MCU, but she makes the most of them. And this is a little unrelated, but it goes back to the scenes with Odin and in particular after the Odin sleep when Loki is talking to Sif and the Warriors 3 about Thor's banishment. And I might be reading too much into the sort of stylistic elements of this movie, but I can't help but think about those blue lens flares. Like, I know that they were popularized by J.J. Abrams and that's... that's He can do what he wants, but I feel like in this movie, because we don't see them very often and they're not typically used in the MCU, I feel like it has to mean something or else it wouldn't be there. You know, I'm sorry, whether... I'm sorry to the audience. I have issues with J.J. Abrams, as I'm sure Emily knows. So that was the, the genesis of my grunting over on and this end. And that's fine. I said I apologize. that was fine. You can have it. You can have it. But I feel like whether it's a call to Loki turning evil or his frost giant side or the changing tides of power or something, like I feel like it has to mean something. It is blue. And we've already established that blue glowing things seem to be magical, significant, I don't know. Dangerous. Dangerous, all of the above. Jane and Thor arrive at the Mjolnir landing site. Thor breaks into the shield compound to try and retrieve the hammer. This is where we meet Agent Jasper Sitwell for the first time. Jasper Sitwell shows up again in Avengers, in Captain America the Winter Soldier, and in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV series. This is also where we get to meet Clint Barton, a.k.a. Hawkeye, played for the first time by Jeremy Renner in an uncredited role. I actually never noticed Sitwell in this scene before. It might just be because I don't really watch the Thor movies more than once or twice. And also I know that it's brief, but getting a few seconds of Hawkeye was something that I always really did like about this movie. And I think it does a good job of establishing that all of these people are going to be a part of the universe moving forward. I always really liked that. Well, it's all world building. The MCU has done a fantastic job at world building, if nothing else. Thor fights his way through a bunch of shield guys and makes it to the hammer, but he cannot move it once he gets there. He collapses in shock and disbelief before being carted off by shield. I love the way 
that this whole sequence is shot. You get the cool hand-to-hand combat scene in the rain, followed by those nice close-ups of Thor trying to lift Mjolnir unsuccessfully in the rain, Coulson observing him in the rain, and Hawkeye poised to shoot Thor in the rain. I love rain, in case you haven't noticed. Well, that was a stupid thing to say. I hate rain. What am I talking about? (laughs) But it looks great on film. And then to touch it off, we end the scene with a shot of Heimdall observing all of this from afar. The close-up of Idris Elba's eye after the camera withdraws from that last shot of Mjolnir from on high was a very nice touch by Kenneth Branagh and his cinematographer, Harris Zemberlokas. I also really like the scene in between Thor's fight at S.H.I.E.L.D. and his talk with Loki and his cell. The conversation between Jane Darcy and Eric Selvig. That snippet of, ah, you know, that's science fiction. And Jane goes, yeah, a precursor to science fact. Always really felt like a powerful line to me, especially considering how technology and scary quotes the future can be (laughs) considered magic to some and science to others. The sort of two sides of the same coin. It's only magic because you don't understand it yet. Isn't that what Jane says? She says, you know, magic is just technology that we don't understand yet. Yeah, and Thor says that later, that Jane calls it magic, and on Thor's planet, magic and science are one and the same. Loki appears to Thor in his shield cell and tells him that Odin died from the strain of Thor's behavior and its worsening of relations with Jotunheim, that the treaty with Jotunheim was conditional upon his exile, and that their mother forbade him from returning. All lies, of course. A repentant Thor apologizes, presumably because he feels he let everybody down. On the way out, Loki tries to take Mjolnir, and I wonder how much that hurts him to not be able to. It kind of feels like his one last attempt to deny his real truth, that he was never going to be worthy of the throne like Thor, no matter what he did. You would think that act of trying to move Mjolnir and not being able to, you would think that even in some small way that it would convince Loki (laughs) that this is not going to end well for him, because it's a very, very clear demonstration that he is not worthy. But instead, it makes Loki double down and dig in his heels even further. Denial ain't a river in Egypt. And it's like you were saying earlier, it's like he has this ability to, the more it looks like things aren't going to work, the more his ambitions grow, or words to that effect. Right, it's the yeah. same sort. It's the same sort of thing here. It's like you would think this would tell him, no, stop. But no, he just amps up even more. He gets more frustrated. Shortly thereafter, Selvig manages to spring Thor, who swipes Jane's confiscated notebook on the way out. Coulson orders them both followed. Selvig takes Thor out for a drink, which of course <laughs> turns into multiple drinks, and tells them that he needs to leave town that night and that he mustn't hurt Jane. I love the scene in the bar. Uh, it works on a lot of levels for me. You know, on the one hand, you've got the philosophical exchange between Thor and Selvig, with Thor admitting his vulnerability for the first time and acknowledging that for once he doesn't have all the answers. He says, for the first time in my life, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. And Eric replies, if anyone's ever going to find his way in the world, he has to start by admitting he doesn't know where the hell he is. And that's a reality that all of us have to face at one point or another. And you and I have talked about this sort of thing on multiple occasions ourselves. This is the human aspect of the film at play, I think. Thor is, he's having an identity crisis, and he's having a crisis of purpose. He doesn't know what to do. Loki goes to Jotunheim and reveals to Laufey that he was the one who allowed the Frost Giants to enter Asgard so that he could ruin his big brother's big day. He offers to return the Casket of Ancient Winters in exchange for Laufey having a small invasion force come to Asgard and to slay Odin. Thor returns a passed-out Selvig to Jane's trailer, 
and the two of them have a quiet conversation in which Thor returns the notebook to Jane, and in which he explains Asgard and the Nine Realms to her, indicating that her work as an astrophysicist must continue for the sake of human knowledge. And this conversation is sort of what I said before about magic and science being one and the same or two sides of the same coin. And I really like this scene. I like that it shows a softer side of Thor that we don't ever get to see in any of the other movies. He never really gets to be sensitive or caring, even when he's had a chance to grow up a bit more over the course of the movie. We see Thor being vulnerable, but I think this, I think you're right, this may really be the only time we see him having this really tender, caring, sensitive moment with anyone. Uh, I don't even think we see that in Thor The Dark World. We also never get to see Thor be presented as someone who's smart either. Book smart, I guess. Like, he is clearly very capable in battle, but to see him explain in a sort of movie-fied version of physics, I guess, you know, like astrophysicist type mm-hmm. stuff, that he can sit there and explain the Bifrost. And clearly he's very capable, and he's not just some, like, big, dumb jock. It could also be that him explaining the Bifrost to Jane would be the same as you or I explaining to a child here and now like how a highway works or that we're capable of you know putting people in rockets and sending them to the moon it's entirely possible that it could be something that's just been ingrained in him for such a long time since his youth that he's able to retell it very easily it does give you pause because it's really the only time that you see him act that way he usually spends most of his time smashing things and strongest avenger and stuff like that i think he's just smarter than we give him credit for i think he is too when we get to thor ragnarok i think we'll see more of that because i think that movie gives him a chance to take matters into his own hands rather than react to his surroundings. I think he does that a lot more in the first two movies. And then, you know, Ragnarok and Infinity War, we get to see Thor kind of take a little bit more initiative. Whether that's a reflection of book smart or whatever, I don't know. But it just sort of strikes me that it's an opportunity to see him be more than we've seen thus far. With Heimdall's assistance, Sif and the Warriors 3 take the Bifrost to Earth to find Thor, which draws the attention of both Loki and Coulson in the process. And they find their way to the town and are able to reunite with Thor and tell him what's really been going on back home and i love that line with the two shield agents on the roof base we've got xena jackie chan and robin hood (laughs) as the three of them are walking down the street i thought that was funny loki confronts heimdall and freezes him with the casket he also sends the destroyer to earth to get rid of thor permanently with the help of jane selvig darcy sif and the warriors three thor works to get the townsfolk to safety as the destroyer approaches sif and the warriors three unsuccessfully try to stop it it's at this point that thor offers to sacrifice himself to save the town and his friends. His worthiness thus demonstrated, Mjolnir returns to Thor along with his powers and he's able to destroy the Destroyer. I guess on the same topic that I always forget that Thor is capable in a book smart way, I always forget that Thor is pretty formidable as a fighter because... Further on in the MCU, he plays a bit of comic relief as a guy who's just a jock and he doesn't know much and stuff like that. And he's not really engaged with the whole process. He just wants to Hulk smash, I guess, without being Hulk. (laughs) But how quickly he lays waste to the Destroyer without any help at all. When normally it would take Steve or Tony or anybody else in the Avengers a bit more time and a bit more help to get that done. When you've got the powers of a Thunder God, it does come in handy, doesn't it? Right. What's Natasha's line in the Avengers? These people are basically gods. 
Before returning to Asgard to confront Loki, Thor promises to Coulson, I like how he calls him Son of Coal, that's something that I actually never noticed until I rewatched it just the other day, that he would be an ally to this world so long as he returns Jane's work, equipment, and research to her. Loki, having dispatched Heimdall, allows Laufey and his men passage into Asgard. Fortunately, Heimdall is able to break out of his ice, and he bifrosts Thor and his friends back to Asgard, but not before Thor promises Jane that he will one day return for her. Now, never let it be said that Loki cannot manipulate a situation to his advantage, as he grants Laufey entrance to Odin's chambers to murder him, only to turn on Laufey and kill him himself, thus demonstrating his bravery by defending his father. To his mother, he declares his intention to destroy Jotunheim by turning the uncontrolled power of the Bifrost onto it. Thus, when Odin awakes, Loki will appear to have saved his life, vanquished his enemies, and proven himself a worthy king. So I think we can safely say that Loki has now at this point officially gone completely nuts. He says he's trying to prove his worth to Odin, but it also seems to me like he's just so pissed at everybody that he's determined to just burn the whole ship down to the waterline. And he's sort of equally unhinged as the rest of the series goes on too, if not more so. That imbalance of as he gets more unhinged, his ambitions continue to go up higher. Like he says to Thor, I only ever wanted to be your equal, but it's clear he does want the throne and he does want to be better than Thor, whatever form that takes. And I guess it's kind of like a nothing matters anymore. Might as well burn everything down for funsies. He's such a complex character. There's so much going on up there. Sometimes it's a little hard to follow, but all these things, all these desires are so interwoven. Like you said, sometimes I think he just gets to a bursting point and it's like nothing else matters and he just sort of explodes. Thor and Loki confront each other. At first, Thor refuses to fight his brother, but when Loki threatens to go after Jane, it is on, and we get this great fight between these two absolutely enraged titans. Ultimately, Thor realizes that the only way to stop Loki from destroying Jotunheim is for him to destroy the Bifrost itself, an act which will effectively cut off the Nine Realms from each other, and perhaps more importantly to Thor, will cut off Thor from Jane. And so that is exactly what he does. As the Bifrost collapses on itself, Thor and Loki begin falling off the edge of the world into the abyss, until Odin, now released from his slumber, arrives to save them. Alas, Loki, realizing he can never win the love and admiration that he craves, allows himself to fall away into what is left of the Bifrost. Thor, grieving the loss of his brother and missing Jane, tells Odin that he's not yet ready to be king. Heimdall tells Thor that there's still hope that Earth might not be lost to them after all, and that Jane is indeed searching for him. Finally, we get the post credit scene in which we see Eric Selvig being presented by Nick Fury with the Tesseract, and all the while, Loki is looking on to be continued. That's a pretty good cutscene. I really like that one. You're gonna hate me for this. One of my favorite things about musical theater is when two characters are in different places. So in Rent, there are two main characters. I have seen Rent. Okay, so there's a point. I I don't remember it, but I have seen it. This is like 21 years ago, but I have seen it. There's a point in the show where one of the characters is in New York and one of the characters is in New Mexico, funnily enough. And they're singing a song and they're both on stage because there's nowhere else to go. And they're singing about their competing issues separate of each other, but they're still kind of singing about each other, yada, yada. And they walk sort of past each other and have their own moments. Mm -hmm. And they sort of turn and look at each other, but they clearly can't be looking at each other because they're in a 
thousands of miles away. And so this scene with Selvig and Loki having each other in the mirror, neither of them talking to each other, but still communicating to each other. I just really like that. That just gets me every time. It's such an easy, simple trick to move a story forward. Even in the last Star Wars movie, uh, uh, The Last Jedi, right? Uh, Rise of Skywalker. Rise. Of, I'm going to out myself right here as a very just base level Star Wars fan. I don't know anything. It's okay. But- There's no judgment here. No judgment here. One of my favorite parts of Rise of Skywalker was when Daisy Ridley. Ray. Okay. When Ray and Kylo Ren, when they're fighting at the end and he drops his lightsaber and she pulls it from behind mm-hmm. and they're in two different places. It gets me every time. It's so cool. This is probably one of my favorite cutscenes, even though it's very, very short. It's also a neat scene. It foreshadows not only Loki's involvement in Avengers, but it also foreshadows Eric Selvig's involvement in Avengers and perhaps even more so the interaction between the two of them in Avengers, which as we will find out in Thor The Dark World leaves poor Dr. Selvig quite scarred. This is the part where we talk about characters and actors. Starting with Chris Hemsworth as Thor. In the the Collider video interview that I was talking about at the beginning of the show, Kenneth Branagh said that he and Kevin Feige talked about how the casting of Thor would be one of the most important decisions ever made for the franchise. I think clearly they succeeded. I can't imagine anybody playing that role but Chris Hemsworth now. Although Tom Hiddleston, of all people, originally auditioned for it. I don't know how many people know that, but that is true. Hemsworth has this uncanny ability to play all the serious stuff. He can play all the funny stuff. He can play the quieter moments, like the talk with Jane, all equally well. I feel like I don't have a whole lot more than that to say about him right now, but that will change as Thor evolves in the MCU. So don't worry, I will have lots more to say about him later on because he most certainly does evolve. I definitely agree with you. And this sort of is the way with all the characters, I guess, that once they've been cast, you can't imagine anybody else in their role. Like you can't imagine anybody else but RDJ playing Tony Stark and you can't imagine anybody else but Chris Evans playing Steve Rogers. You can't imagine anybody else playing Thor except Chris Hemsworth. I did know that Tom Hiddleston auditioned for the role whenever I think about that I think well then who would have been Loki because like the only person who could be Loki is Tom Hiddleston it's Tom Hiddleston <laughs> mm-hmm. yep and I don't have a ton to say as I have a lot to say about Thor from Ragnarok and Endgame in particular but the only thing I don't like about early Thor is how much of an oaf he's portrayed to be <laughs> and that's kind of the case for the rest of the movies too that this constant portrayal that he is not bright doesn't take things seriously but he clearly does and so I just wish that he was a touch more complicated I guess that would be my wish and mm-hmm. obviously since we're nearly through the MCU in real time, not in podcast time, but in real time, that doesn't quite happen. But that's one thing that I wish we could see for the character. It'll be interesting to revisit this when we get to Infinity War, because I think my favorite portrayal of Thor in any of the movies is Infinity War. I love his arc in Infinity War, which, if you think about it, is part of a much larger arc for his character overall. But what he does in Infinity War in particular, I find very compelling. I think he's got the most compelling story arc in that movie. So it will be interesting to see sort of what we're talking about when we get to Infinity War. By the way, did you know that Chris Hemsworth never lifted weights before making this movie? I'd buy it. At first, it kind of startled me. You think Chris Hemsworth, you think 
Thor and big beefy action hero guys, but he says he never lifted weights before he started training for this movie. He kind of gives off that vibe of a person who's just always been naturally fit and doesn't have to try. Yeah, I can kind of see that. There is the famous, or I suppose I should say infamous, clip of him on the Australian Dancing with the Stars back in the mid-aughts. You can look that up on YouTube. It's it's quite amusing. Natalie Portman as Jane Foster. We said we were going to come back to this. I've always found Natalie Portman very hit or miss in the roles that she's had. I mean, if it's the right role, I think it's a hit. I mean, I particularly liked her in The Black Swan, you know, her Oscar win, Where the Heart Is, Garden State, and then other films, you know, maybe not so much. The Star Wars films, Closer, one of the most depressing movies ever made. I think both of her Thor movies are more in the latter category. I think she's trying She's trying her damnedest. I think she's trying really hard in these movies to make the best of it, but for some reason, I have a hard time taking her seriously as an astrophysicist. I have a hard time shedding this belief every time I see her that I'm looking at a 16-year-old every single time. could just be the way she appears. She just always looks very waifish to me. I really like her. It's just that as I said before, I wish we'd gotten to see more of her. For me, she's one of the few secondary female characters that feels relatable and not extremely one-dimensional like pretty much all of the others are. Like, I'm thinking about the difference between her and Betty. Jane, <laughs> Jane Foster is astronomically better than she's Betty. The anti, she's the anti-Betty for <laughs> right. sure in terms of acting ability. If I had to cast someone and I had the choice between Liv Tyler and Natalie Portman, oh God, yeah, I would take Natalie Portman any day. And obviously... Jane Foster exists for Thor's plot and to further his story, of course, and we're not going to talk about all the problems I have with that, but <laughs> even more so in the next Thor movie in particular, in particular in the Dark World, she kind of really only exists for his growth. But she is funny, and she has her own set of friends and her own life, and we actually know things about her outside of her connection with Thor. She was an astrophysicist before she met Thor. She is going to be an astrophysicist after. Her own life exists outside of him, and he didn't make her who she was. Mm -hmm. Tom Hiddleston as Loki. Naturally, I enjoy a good bad guy now and again. And like we've said before, you can't imagine anyone else being Thor, and I can't imagine anyone else but Tom Hiddleston being Loki. I think he brings out all sides of Loki and shows that he is really complicated and not just some, like, Joe Schmo baddie off the street, sort of how Hammer kind of felt in Iron Man 2, and sort of how all the baddies feel from the movies that we've done so far. You know, one thing that we've also talked about with Tom Hiddleston it is he's really good at communicating without speaking. So we're talking about all the facial expressions that he made. Loki didn't have hardly any lines in that scene between Thor and Odin when they were arguing, but you knew exactly what he was thinking and basically where he stood without even a line. He didn't have to say a single thing and you knew exactly where he stood. If the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies have an Achilles heel of any sort, it's always been the villains because a lot of them have tended to be fairly cookie cutter stock villains who twirl their mustaches, which is why the movies like this one and say Black Panther are so notable because we get bad guys who may not be entirely bad who elicit some sympathy from the audience and are very complex. In terms of Hiddleston being able to do a lot of acting without saying anything, his eyes, we talked about this earlier, the way his eyes follow that conversation between Odin and Thor. He's taking it all in, looking for an edge. I agree with you that he brings out all facets of Loki. Obviously, we, we love the maniacally evil part of him, but like I said before, there's pathos there too, and we see that played out very beautifully. I'd be kind of pissed off too if my dad waited 100,000 years or however old Loki is to tell me that I was adopted. As someone who battles with one or two insecurities himself, I totally get that he's envious of all the attention that's being lavished upon Thor. Initially, at least, you know, the guy's a total oaf. 
Anthony Hopkins as Odin. As I've been saying in all of these movies so far, Marvel is really good at picking veteran actors to play pivotal roles in their movies. Anthony Hopkins, no exception. I think he delivers a really strong, capable performance as the worst dad ever in the MCU. I'm going to keep hammering that, no pun intended, as much as I can. I spend a lot of time in the fandom world, in particular fan fiction and things like that. And one of my favorite ongoing tags, whether it's on Tumblr or Archive of Our Own or any other fanfic website, is the tag Odin's A-plus parenting. <laughs> um, him and Howard great. really are competing for that top spot of just the worst dad ever in a movie series. I um, take it they show up in Tumblr and stuff. Such a lot. Yes, they do. It's a very popular tag. And Howard has one as well. So it's Howard Stark's A plus parenting. But Odin's is incredibly popular and I see it a lot. On the flip side of picking veteran actors to play pivotal roles in movies, I do think Jeff Bridges would have been a good Odin, considering in the first Iron Man movie how we talked about how intimidating he was and how Odin does have a couple of these scenes where he's just incredibly aggressive and kind of scary. But if Jeff Bridges had been Odin, I wonder then who would have played Obadiah. Mm. I guess it's the same with Tom Hiddleston, that if Tom Hiddleston had been Thor, who in the world would have played Loki? I think you could have cast Obadiah pretty effectively without Jeff Bridges, as good as Jeff Bridges was in that role. It would be interesting to see Jeff Bridges with the eye patch and the long hair. I hadn't thought about that. That would be interesting. Jeff Bridges as Odin. We should do an episode one of these days where it's just fantasy fan casting. MCU miscast? MC, <laughs> there you go. I like that. Clark Gregg returns as Agent Phil Coulson of S.H.I.E.L.D. Coulson is better in this movie. I feel like he's less childish, if I can say that about his portrayal in the other movies we've seen him in so far. He just feels like maybe more of a fully formed person in this movie. And he's definitely more serious and seems to be taking his leadership role in stride. But also, this is one of the first times that we see Coulson actually tell a joke and land it without it being awkward or... <laughs> sort of feel out of place so like when the destroyer shows up and an agent asks is that one of Starks and Coulson goes I don't know that guy never tells me anything and it's yeah. <laughs> properly funny like it's properly funny without being weird so I'm thinking mm -hmm. of the and I don't even know if this is meant to be funny but in Captain Marvel when Fury leaves him at the blockbuster and he ends up taking the alien with him and Coulson's just like nope I'm still here <laughs> like you can yeah. tell that that was kind of meant to be a joke but it didn't really land with me and uh -huh. I don't know what happened between between filming Iron Man 2 and filming Thor, but I just like his characterization a lot better in this movie. Coulson is Coulson in this movie, I think. I mean, he's he's still all business, man in black, doing it for the sake of national security sort of thing. But I do like how we get glimpses of him being more proactive, being more involved, instead of just reacting to everything in this movie. For example, when Eric comes to spring Thor, there's no way that Coulson believes his cover story, but he lets them go anyway, and he has his agents tail them because he realizes at that point that the only way he's going to learn anything from Thor is to let Thor lead him to it. That ends up being exactly what happens. Stellan Skarsgård as Dr. Eric Selvig. I love Eric Selvig. I'm not entirely sure why, though. There's something about sort of his steady, consistent presence that feels very reassuring to me. In a universe full of all these extreme, super-powered beings and crazed villains and conflict, 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 you need a few normal people around for the audience to relate to. I feel like he does have a bit of that in him. Yeah, I would agree. Him and Darcy, I think, are pretty similar in that they're both trying to push back on this idea of 
entering a super powered world because he spent so much of his time being like no these are stories like this isn't real this can't be real here's the science here's all the like legitimate facts behind it and you know like Darcy's is more like funny jokey haha but I think those could be the two different ways that people react when they're not strictly one-dimensional like when they're allowed to have sort of character growth it'll be interesting to come back to Selvig and Thor the Dark World he's been scarred by his experiences with Loki and Avengers speaking of Darcy I guess we got to talk one more time about Kat Dennings as Darcy Lewis I don't know what more we can say about her that hasn't been said already she brings that real world common sense perspective even if it is a little bit narrow at times you know getting upset about her iPod being confiscated at S.H.I.E.L.D. being her number one priority the six college credits thing she's really good comic relief and I think her reactions you know I've said like they make a lot of sense especially considering she's what is she she's an English major right I think she's an English major yeah yeah so she doesn't know anything about Jane or Selvig's work political science because like doesn't Selvig say I thought you were scientist political science yeah Wasn't I think that it? it's something like that it's definitely not astrophysics that's for sure yeah. <laughs> and so she doesn't know anything about Jane or Selvig's work so that stuff getting stolen is nothing compared to her iPod or whatever this is just an internship that she probably isn't even getting paid for yeah. you know she's sort of stuck there because I can't imagine that she's got a car to take her away from middle of nowhere New Mexico and she wants to get the college credits but she also doesn't want to die I'm on board with Darcy Lewis <laughs> <laughs> Darcy Lewis has the Emily seal of approval. Darcy Lewis, 2020. Heimdall, played by Idris Elba. Idris Elba reportedly has said in interviews before that he hates doing the Marvel movies. I don't know why. I'm not sure I want to know why. For fear of that reason tarnishing his reputation in my mind as perhaps the coolest man on earth. <laughs> Idris Elba makes any movie he's in cool, but I love him as Heimdall. He's this big, imposing, stoic guy who's just satisfied with guarding stuff. I can understand why actors wouldn't like being with Marvel, especially after it got bought by Disney. But I do agree, obviously. Like, Idris Elba is very cool, and he's also very cool as Heimdall. I like the stoicism. I love the coloring that they did for his eyes. Yeah, And it feels like he's not even seeing the room that he's in because he's looking at the entire rest of the universe. And I think just that little bit of changing the eye color helped sell that immensely. He has such presence. And it's like he almost doesn't have to do a whole lot. Just his physically being there. It's almost as if that's all that needs to be done. He just needs to stand there. Sif and the Warriors 3. Jamie Alexander as Sif. Josh Dallas as Fandral. Ray Stevenson as Volstagg and Tadanobu Asano as Hogan. Strangely, I have very little to say about them. It's strange because I love them. They're one of my favorite parts of the Thor movies. I guess I've just always wondered what kind of people would hang out with Thor in an everyday setting and would want to be his sidekicks or his drinking buddies. Now I know. <laughs> it's these four. I'm just patiently waiting for Valkyrie. Not much longer. Not much longer. You know how many more movies we have to get through before we get to Ragnarok? I'm trying to be optimistic. I'm trying to make the wait not seem as agonizing. I love Valkyrie too. Make no mistake. We talked about Renee Russo as Freya earlier. She doesn't have a whole lot to do in this movie, but the foundation that she lays in terms of her relationship with Loki, which will come into play in Thor The Dark World, I thought she was fine in all of her MCU appearances, despite the fact that they were so brief. They were impactful. Other stuff, we're always talking about music. The score for this film was provided by Patrick Doyle, who is a frequent Kenneth Branagh collaborator. This is his only score for the MCU thus far. And with all due respect to Mark Mothersbaugh, who scored Thor Ragnarok, this is probably my favorite of the three Thor scores. It just has all those hallmarks of a good fantasy adventure film. I feel like we hear some of that 
soft piano theme in future MCU movies? Or am I still just searching, hopefully, for the common theme to show up? The one thing I do know, in Thor Ragnarok, Mark Mothersbaugh made a point of, in addition to using his own themes, which are awesome, you do hear in that very last scene of him, you know, sitting down in the throne slash the command chair of the Asgardian ship, a little bit of Patrick Doyle's theme, and that was deliberate. Also, sort of tangentially, the very, very first thing that you hear in Infinity War, you know, you hear the distress call coming from the ship in the beginning of Infinity War. That's Kenneth Branagh. He helped usher in the Asgardian people, and he, I guess he was allowed ushered to help. them right back out. <laughs> right, ushered them right back out. And that is our review of Thor. By the time this episode drops, it will probably be kind of in full swing in the holiday season, such as it will be this year. So all of you out there listening... We hope you have an enjoyable holiday. We hope you celebrate safely, please. Also, I'm guessing that this episode is probably airing right around my esteemed colleague Emily's birthday. So I'll go ahead and wish her a happy birthday as this episode will be dropping right around that time. Happy birthday, Emily. Oh, thank you. My birthday. One of the most important days in the MC. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, Mission so... report, December 16th, 1991. <laughs> what happened? What happened? It is a big day. It is a big day in our in our lives, especially Emily's, because, you know, she began. <laughs> Emily does so much work for this podcast. We've been doing this now for about four months. So this will be our last show for 2020. And I just want to thank her for all of the hard work that she's put into this. She does all of our editing and puts up with all of my ridiculous suggestions for ideas for the show. And it has been an honor and a privilege and a joy to do this with you, Emily. So thank you for doing this this year. I look forward to continuing with you in 2021. We have lots more movies to go. So we will see you all again in 2021. Happy holidays to you all. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you on the flip side. Have a good night, everybody. See you next year. Bye-bye. Are we clear? Yep. All right. That's our wrap, folks. Okay. Get me out of here. <laughs> you can be liberated from your cage. Hang on. Hi, baby. Hi. I'm going to quit out of clean feed and go back to FaceTime. Oh, there's a little kitty cat outside. Hi, baby.